everybody. Welcome to Parallax Podcasts. I'm here with Max Borders, who is doing uh, a course for us um, beginning March 10th. And it's a very audacious project, um, even ambitious project. It's called The Grey Robes Initiation into a Global Digital Priesthood. I know you're the author of several several books and uh, uh, the social singularity in 2018, the decentralists, um, and another book called Underthrow. So, so I know you're prolific, and I know you're on fire, and I know you have a lot of wonderful ideas. So I want to so, and that's why we invited you to do a course. So, but I want you to kind of maybe lay out this concept um, for the course. And maybe we can talk a little bit in more detail about the details of the course, like the concept of the gray robes and what is a, a digital priesthood. Sound good? Sounds great. Let's start then with that um, that idea of what is the gray robes all about? I think a lot of people are wanting to know. I think it's piqued their curiosity, certainly. Um, and I can reveal what it symbolizes to me and maybe it'll resonate with with your folks as well um really if you think about uh, let's go back to 2014 this fellow named scott alexander it's which is a pseudonymous name uh for for a, a writer who's really made the rounds in, in quite an amazing way i think he's a psychologist or psychiatrist one or the other but otherwise is has done writing on the side for Astral Codex 10 and um and uh, I forgot the other the, the other um and um acronym or no what is it called anyway where you mix I couldn't up the tell letters. you I couldn't help you with that <laughs> okay sorry yeah. well he he's really quite a quite a famous writer um he, he, at least stateside, and I, I and I think, I think internationally as well. Mm -hmm. In 2014, term this, uh, coined this term, the Gray Tribe, and the Gray Tribe is neither red nor blue. Which, forgive the sort of American navel gazing, actually works in Europe quite well to to a great degree at least in Britain, where, where they have uh, blue and red designations. They happen to be flipped mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> in the United States. Suffice it to say, it symbolizes sort of partisan duality of conservatives versus progressives, essentially. Yeah. And, and, and is that a reference to the, the matrix and the red pill and the blue pill as well? I mean, it can, I, mean it I think can. the red and the blue symbolism is quite universal in many ways, you know, red being a fiery color of revolution and, and blue being more of, you know, a, a stable color or a color right, of traditionalism. Right. Well, and that's why it was odd, because um, what what it also appealed to was the colors in the U.S. flag. So what you began to see in election seasons over time was every election season, these news organizations started symbolizing the two major two parties in the United States with red and blue. And so that became sort of a mapping, a mental mapping. Now, it it makes less sense in 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 
in the sense that traditionally we've understood red as being associated with more left or more socialist and blue being more <laughs> associated with conservatives, conservative, conservatism. But that got flipped at some point just by virtue of one election season when they, uh, one of the news organizations made it so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this kind of got picked up and became a meme, red team and blue team. Yeah. So the red tribe, blue tribe trope has been around as, to inter- as a partisan metaphor for a while. But in 2014, Scott, Scott Alexander came out with uh, sort of identified a new tribe. He called it the gray tribe. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the background story of that. Now, mm-hmm. what the gray tribe symbolizes, we can talk about in a moment. Yeah. Well, just about the gray, the red and the blue, first of all, is it would seem that, you know, the the Republicans are red, which seems like an inversion to me. Um, it does. The, the Trump yeah. is sort of, you know, a revolutionary where he's actually saying build a wall, you know, uh, which is more of a, a, you know, normally a conservative. Like in France, where I live, Marie Le Pen, they're called les bleus, like the blues. Um, mm-hmm. And they want to bring back, you know, they want to build a wall and keep immigrants out in there and, and, and go back to the way things were. And so it's, it is a, it is a real inversion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's quite unfortunate because it doesn't play to those older tropes about, you know, red socialist and, and blue conservatives. But um, but that's OK. It, it is what it is. And I guess we have to accept it. Um People know what you mean in in the United States, and certainly um, elsewhere. You know, forgive the my. It's it's not meant to be jingoistic or anything. It's just acknowledging what it is. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine it uh, flipping it for your own purposes. The point is that that kind of that fundamental duality that even yeah. plays out in parliamentary systems. Yeah. The Gray Tribe came along um, and was identified by Scott Alexander, and really what he was getting at with this with this is we are neither nor right yeah our we we and and you have to keep in mind this is this is after a couple of key pivotal events in the in the years leading up to that i think the first mm-hmm. was um the the when the bitcoin white paper came out and that was uh october 31st 2008 Okay, so that was a that was a massive that that is neither nor that is not not left nor right. It is a if you if you look orthogonally to left and right, it is you might call it more liberal to more authoritarian, right? Mm-hmm. It is ultra liberal. It is to say to get the in, uh, intercession of central authorities out of the way through yeah. technological means. And this had a quite a broad appeal to some of the people in Silicon Valley who were didn't really identify with sort of the uh, the red the 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 red tribe had become more and more populist even before Trump and a little you know were perceived as just spit sawdust liking football what you know lowbrow what the working class is associated with and and yeah, the, the elites said, you know they're the deplorables right and the mm-hmm. the the elites saw themselves as oh you know technocratic and educated and and so allowed to 
plan and design society for the rest of those? And how could they resist our our charms and our promises when all, we're only trying to help them? Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. kind of attitude. So very patronizing. It mm -hmm. Yeah, it became a kind of baser anti-elitism uh, in, 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 in the zeitgeist versus mm -hmm. this um, this technocratic elitism tinged with, of course, this, this radical social justice, the, the, the social justice fundamentalism, if you like. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so the Greys came along and, um, you know, the Bitcoin white paper was, it's, it's we kind of, <clears throat> you might say it has a, a flavor of libertarianism, an, the old liberalism of the American founding, but it is mm -hmm. much more tech forward. It's the idea, it's the old liberalism of the Amer American founding plus, plus this this idea of we can radically innovate everything in terms of social change. So it abandons conservatism on the one hand and technocracy on the one hand, on the other hand, this sort of left-wing technocracy mm -hmm. and, um, and, and stakes out its own territory. The gray tribe was born mm -hmm. now. So we want to riff on that a little bit. And yeah. that's, that's really the point of sort of appropriating that as a brand. And I, I've done that with my shirt <laughs> today. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just a few things that come to mind as, as you're speaking, um, of course, it seems to me when you have this, I, I thought of the term that John Vicky uses, two, world, two worlds mythology, which he, he applies kind of to, to religion, but we could easily, you know, apply this to politics as well. There's two sides, right? And then, and then there's a movement of these two sides being in this dialectical kind of like, you know, war with each other all the time. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, and then the two sides flip. <laughs> uh, and uh and for, it seems like the two sides flip and it seems like the radical the conservatives are now the radicals and, and the the radicals are now you know the techn technocrats or, or at least the progressives are now the most conservative and and the you know and the, and the you know the suddenly the conservatives become you know radical in some kind of a way and um and then so everything seems to be like the upside down clown world um, and then uh, everybody's looking for this this in between, and I, I mean I've I, I I've always felt kind of on the in between that I didn't want to take a side or I, I didn't want to be part of any kind of unidimensional or mono, monological you know uh, ideology. Um, so so I guess I guess I'm a gray. <laughs> um, yeah, I think a lot of people see themselves that way but haven't quite articulated it mm. so maybe that's what's it. nice and radical about your concept and appropriate and and why it should be should be spread well and there's um there's a couple more tropes embedded in the color gray that i want to i want to share with your your audience one is the idea of if you re recall from the, the that great hero's journey story of um of the lord of the rings right mm. uh, or the hobbit either one they have the monomyth i think embedded in both the idea is that you have the wise counsel of gandalf the gray yeah and gandalf the gray as a as a trope is warning against wearing the ring of power the ring of power is a symbol of radical centralization 
Hmm. Power is just too tempting. It's, it's, it goes all the way back to the Ring of Gaiji's story, which is an, um, in ancient Greek mythology, even prior to, it was written about and referred to in the uh, um, Plato's dialogues. So there's this really interesting dialogue between, I think it's, it's Socrates and someone else. And I think Socrates actually <laughs> loses that, that dialogue to some degree, but um, I don't want to speak out of turn and misremember. Suffice it to say the ring of Gyges is a ring of invisibility that confers the, the power to act with impunity. And of course, political power gives people an opportunity to act with impunity as well, if there aren't sufficient checks. So we are seeing the rapid advance of this sort of this technocratic managerial regime that is making a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And the left, uh, the, the left in North America, uh, whether that be the, you know, red team in, in Canada of, of Trudeau, or, you know, it's been profoundly embraced on the left. But they also don't want to uh, to embrace this, as I said, populism of the right, which is a strange turn of events as well. Mm -hmm. So you get this, um, you're getting this unholy alliance between business and government that is super powerful, the corporatist state. It is evolved... I hate to use the F word, but it's it's evolved fascism. It's not a conscientious fascism like um, Benito Mussolini said. It is this um, coital arrangement between business and government that was bound to happen mm. that, you know, and so the Greys are really not into this. They see this coming. They and we imagine Klaus Schwab, you know, back in the shadows inviting all these business leaders and all these government leaders into his dialectic den there in Davos. And we're like, holy shit, what, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's going on all the time. This is just making it an, into a parade, but this is the kind of stuff that's happening all the time. And more and more power is being taken away from the people. So mm -hmm. it's no wonder that there's a popular response to that. The problem is the populists tend to want to just think in terms of commandeering the wheels of power, of wearing the ring as well, that yeah. they're going to install the right kind of person. At so the we have authoritarianism on one hand, and then we have revolution on the other. And both of these are, are sort of feeding into each other and, 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 and provide no resolution or no kind of place where one could could live. I, I I don't know if you would call it revolution, and that's the thing. Yeah. I think the gray the grays are more into the idea of something more revolutionary, or at least rapid evolution. But mm. that is it's well. I meant that in the negative sense. Like I meant that in the negative sense. Like like a, a revolution in the sense of just just a blind kind of revolution when with, without any kind of aim or which tends to lead to more more destruction and, and tends to tends to put you know more monsters in in in, in place where where other ones were were cut off tends to have that kind of 
effect. Sorry, please continue. No, no. I mean, I think that's a good point. Um, the dynamics are so strange these days because a lot of time, what we're getting now is is this message that we need equal and opposite power. We just need mm -hmm. a counter march through the institutions following Rudy Deutsch and Gramsci, right? And that counter march through the institutions means we need to take the institutions back over and shove our version of the one true way down everyone else's throats. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that really is counter to the spirit of decentralized innovation that the Greys represent. We are a neither nor tribe there. The gray mm -hmm. robes trope, of course, is to really to formalize that. So if you appeal to the wisdom of of Gandalf, as I was as I, as I was referring to earlier, it's like resist the temptation of the ring. Yep. Or another way of putting it might be, or at least give everyone equally powerful rings. Yeah, that right? seems like yeah. a profoundly ethical stance. Whereas which just seems kind of counterintuitive to how we think of libertarianism, um, or at least these the tech people and, and what they're what they're up to. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of people who um, who have gotten captured by the sort of technocratic thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like if you if you if you think about technology, especially that which comes out of Silicon Valley, as being a tool. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a knife is a tool. You can use a knife to cut your steak, or you can use a knife to stab your spouse, right? Yeah. So, how do we ethically use these tools? And I think that there's a there there are a lot of conversations about how technology technology can allow the rapid centralization of power and authority, um, where Silicon Valley, as it were, plays handmaiden. To the powerful or it can be a force of, of decentralization where power is more locally concentrated there still might be uh you know a, a condition we might call polycentrism which is there is still low loci of power in mm -hmm. in different places but when you're closer to the action you it can be more participatory right mm -hmm. it's it, it gets to be a place where something more akin to democracy makes sense because you're not just crying your teardrop into the ocean of 350 million people say here in the United States and expecting the tide to turn because it never will, yeah. you know, just probabilistically your vote isn't going to change the outcome of an election. And it's, it, it becomes this great illusion uh, that allows the powerful to continue what they're doing and that power is really runs orthogonal to red and blue in terms of the power structure. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the grays realize. And so you get this, uh, another example uh, quickly is um, Uber. Um, some people don't like Uber. They think it's, you know, it's too corporate or whatever. But the idea behind Uber was that you could, you know, you could overturn this taxi medallion mon uh, cartel uh, by by operating within a legal gray area through technological mm -hmm. means that allowed mm -hmm. people to safely hitch rides, which had been tabooized because it was dangerous. With Uber, it becomes less dangerous. And suddenly you have a distributed system that allows riders and drivers to to be to coordinate with each other 
outside of the taxi medallion monopoly. That is the kind of thing that is this, the sort of subversive innovation that the greys like. And so you get Uber coming up, you get the Bitcoin white paper in 2008, Uber, Uber comes online in 2012, I want to say, and you start to get this technological means of changing power dynamics where you can rapidly onboard constituency groups uh, in reverse from the problem of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. The grays emerge as a real force and they start to become self-conscious. Alexander helped them do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should um, talk a little bit more about your course and, and, uh, and, you know, in your introduction, you know, of course, uh, the major, a major word is decentral and major idea here is decentralization. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and, and then, and then you have these concepts, um, which I like, um, mystery, mission, morality, means, and meaning, um, as being, let's say, principal axioms, you know, that you will be talking about, I guess, I, I suppose, in, in your course. Um, so, so perhaps we could go through those and, 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 uh, and discuss what you mean by that. I guess these are what, what are these five M's, what you would say are required, you know, to have this, um, I guess, more enlightened type of small community, you know, run by, not by, not by the ring, but by, you know, a bunch of cool hobbits or yeah i would say these <laughs> are my question clear <laughs> I, yeah i would say i'd say that's a that's a pretty good assessment it's like <clears throat> these are the elements that any form of social organization are going to have to have to have growth and staying power hmm. okay you know it's it's um it's also you could consider these five as being in there is a dearth of these dimensions in in modern society. And we could talk about why that is the case. But it's like, it's, this is also marketing something missing. Yeah. You know, there's this term out there called, you know, that John Ferfake uses called the meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. And he's not wrong, particularly in, in contemporary times, uh, you know, these modern times. Um, well, it's interesting. I, sorry, I, I interrupted here, but um, I, I keep seeing people flip from being atheists to, to rediscovering some kind of religion. And if they don't flip and if they remain kind of rationalists, they want to like it seems like they want to reinvent rationalism and, and include the things that religion um, provided, for example, mystery, you know, or morality or you know, meaning, all these things, you know, mission, right? Because if you don't have those things, um, you're just going to fall directly into nihilism and, and uh, sort of shallow reductionist materialism, no? I think that's right. I think that is, um, I think that is in, in many respects my story. I wouldn't call myself uh, just like a, a, a super theist. I would consider myself in some sense an agnostic, it, it, because I think 
in some sense, the journey is, is this admixture of rationality, faith, and imagination, all working in a kind of, all vacillating, you know, that, that, um, and in the course, we'll sort of talk about that. It's not designed to make some, the atheist, or sorry, the atheist a theist. It is more a way of saying, let's use sort of uh, gray robe dialectics to entertain the idea of God, what God might look like. Uh, a, and this is re the reason, because there's an analogy here between the gray robes as a digital priesthood or fraternity, global fraternity, and the Freemasons. And what I saw, what I have seen is that the Freemasons were very successful at unifying diverse peoples from around the world under its auspices and its framework of esoterica, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that we need to rip them off to a very great degree so that the Jew, the Mohammedan, the Hindu, and the Christian and the and the materialist atheist can all um, lock arms in solidarity for the same mission. Yeah, interesting. I, I was I, I'm very fond of the mystic Armenian. I don't know if I'd call him just a mystic, but um, Gurchev and and he one of his missions was to re, was kind of like reinvent the the meaning or the notion of, of what god means um and i think maybe that notion evolves over time right like what people in the middle age meant by god is not what even what uh even what modern christian might mean by god or so 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 what do we mean by god and and and, and what do we mean by let's say a priest and and all these things um if we're in a gray area if we're in an in-between worlds area if we're in a liminal area um perhaps that the, these things are whatever what they were are they're they're changing somewhat yeah i i think um i have this trope that i'll introduce in the course called called uh the you know it's it works in a funny sort of yin yang fashion and that is the the fractal of unanswerable questions followed by the fractal of uh, unquestionable answers. Okay, so it's this vacillating dance between dialectic and dogma. In other words, there needs to be something around which your order organizes, yeah. around which your order orders itself. And yet you don't ever want to stop the process of questioning, right? Questioning puts more hands on the elephant in this world. Mm -hmm. You're constantly, when you think about a fractal, and like a literal Mandelbrot fractal, where you can click down orders of magnitude into this spiraling array that has unique elements and new answers every time you click down every time you zoom into it. Likewise, and, and yet you can sort of pull back and understand the fractal in its totality. Not in its totality, but more as a, as a meta view, right? 
And this telescoping process that you can do with a fractal is similar to the way inquiry works. So it is this it is this dance, this dialectic dance between, on the one hand, um, imagination and faith, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't escape the value-ladenness, the, the faith-based aspects of inquiry. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, the observational, the intuitive, uh, rather the, uh, the observational, the rationalistic, and so on. And this, this dance creates this unfolding. So what we get to is journey and process rather than destination and dogma. So the dogma is the journey. And that mm -hmm. is sort of, so I kind of want to invite people into that process as dogma, if that makes, if that makes sense. It's, it's, it's about being able to live in paradox. While so dogma means sort of an absolute an statement. And the absolute statement is like, w the absolute statement is to not, um, not be captured by the end goal and, um, and, and uh, not, and not give up questioning the journey or, or something like that. Exactly. Hegel liked this idea that there would be a process of, I think you call it sublation, um, yeah. where, so, where upon... it used to be synthesis, but now we call it sublation, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It used I to be the... th thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and now I guess the real word was sublation. Um, yeah. And that was really this ultimate welling up. Um, I forgot the... I speak German, but I forgot the German word, this upwelling character of of sublation, mm -hmm. that that there would be this final ultimate state called the uh, de absolute Geist, right? The absolute spirit. Absolute spirit, yeah. Yeah, and I I don't see that as ever happening. It the, the fractal always unfolds. Mm -hmm. Um the dialectic. So um, our, our good buddy, Alexander Bard calls it methodological Hegelianism. And I think yep. that that's a beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. We adopt the methodology. We shed ourselves of this, the absolutism, the end, the great end of sublation. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we are always and in every case looking for stable equilibria and this particular equilibrium I'm looking I'm looking uh, to bring the the gray order into goes off in a different direction from and uh, from possible other worlds that go, would go in the direction of radical centralization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there's a lot there. Um, but I want to sort of return to the principles of the course. And okay. so why do we need you know, your first one you wrote, it was on the top of your list, let's say it was, it was mystery. So for, uh, mystery from fundamental questions to wide eyed wonder is what you wrote. Um, you know, I, yeah. I guess that that I mean, I, I'm always defending mysticism against rationalists, because I don't think rationalists know how rational mysticism is, or how how really deeply empirical these people were in in in, in the, the great mystics in um in, in looking at, at experience and seeing what it was and but anyway um 
So what's what what about mystery? What's the need for mystery? With the the gray order, as it were, um, it doesn't. Maybe it's not as self conscious. It's still in the gray tribe. But the the people that I would like to to help catalyze or uh, that I hope self organize never stop asking questions. They never stop seeking answers in, amid the mystery. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there are, there are aspects of life that once we start to hold things in paradox, once we start to realize and, and have peak experiences too. Um, one thing that knocked me off of my atheist pedestal um, was my first experience with uh, entheogens. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, um, you know, I feel like a sad Western sack for having for admitting that on on video, much less admitting it at all. But um, because I didn't do the work uh, to get into into this peak experience that practitioners in the East might have done, you know, I took a drug. Yeah. That being said, it happened and it it made me it it prompted me to see the world in many different ways and to feel the as william james would put it the ineffable to sense the ineffable and the noetic and yeah. so that that it not so it's not just the cognitive mysteries that i'm talking about what someone like a niels bohr or and Einstein would have discovered as scientist that there's still mysteries the further down you go into inquiry, scientific inquiry, yeah. but also the realms of imagination and the, po the point and purpose of non-reductivism in, in mythos and in, and in tropes like you refer to that are ancient, like the red goddess, yeah. how questions impel us, the, the red goddess opens her legs and uh, I, I don't want to abuse it, your metaphor, but opens her legs to answers and what, and together the question and answer beget more questions and answers yeah. on yeah. into infinity. And this process is, can be ritualized. It makes us better intellectuals but it also helps us develop spiritually in some sense. Yeah. So that, that pouring ourselves into the mystery has got to be a part of any order like this. And you, you, you gotta know that the esoteric practices of the Freemasons are one of the big things that kept people coming back for more for, you know, nearly a thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the sexual metaphor is, is is appropriate because it's about creation and the mystery of creation mm -hmm. and and the fact that there's yeah there is an opening and then there's a penetration of that mystery and and there's always that going on and you know and then the micro and the macro <clears throat> macro level so so I would say yes you know um, for sure and <clears throat> that's always there in religion you know that's always there in mysticism it's just it's it's often you know, you know we're talking i was talking about i was looking into like 
some of the mythology of the red goddess and i find that in the west it's considered the horror of babylon right it's 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 a very negative uh it's a very negative image and i think that is fear-based um because i think i think yes she creates and destroys and and there's a fierce aspect to that part of like the feminine mythos but on the other hand without that you just have dry intellectualism on some level oh exactly and this is this is this is my diagnosis of the gray tribe right now and mm -hmm. i think um our some of our friends um agree and that yeah. is that it's too autistic and that is not mm -hmm. meant to disparage anyone who's you know uh neurodivergent but rather a way of saying that it's it is a movement that is all about techie tech and making money, but it's not really about the the richness and the passion. Yeah. It's it's all rather bloodless, but it needs yeah. a beating heart. It needs a belief system that is deeper and wider than just crypto tokens and you know even the sort of rudimentary ideological che checklists of libertarians uh who who i don't think um uh get to count a, a, in the fullest picture of what it means to be a gray it's about the alignment of as gurdjieff might appreciate uh head heart and gut yeah 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 and uh and the full-on experience the, the whole experience you know, uh, he calls it the three brains, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we have a tendency to to separate, you know, the mental from the, you know, the emotional or the, you know, the the affective, you know, from from the body. We separate in from from you know from the movements and and uh, you know the work of of Gurdjieff is 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 not is not necessarily, you know, increasing the power of those of the three brains, but working finding a way to have them work together you know, mm -hmm. in relationship with each other. <clears throat> and a lot of the grays are all cognition, right? Yeah. Yeah. They are computer science uh, geeks. And yeah. it's like, okay, but your movement, you can, if you wanted to reduce it to just left and right brain. Yeah, you they're know, all left, like all right brain people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all left brain people. They don't have any right brain people. They need a corpus callosum. Mm -hmm. To go mm -hmm. back to Gurdjieff, they need the oh, the cognitive and the emotional. They need the visceral. Yeah, and you know, uh, but visceral doesn't work by uh, work uh, alone either uh, in isolation, and certainly the emotional doesn't. Yep, that's just passion that burns out of control. Yeah, so, yeah. talking about that emotional regulation uh, <clears throat> and that alignment as a form of power. Uh, is not only informing and edifying our order, but impelling it along is something I think is super important because we're gonna we're gonna need all types. Yeah, yeah. In in the among the grays. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you said is good. Um, I think people have strengths in in either of these areas, and that's that's good. It's the it's the detachment of the the head from the body. You know or the head from the, the heart or the heart, you know, it's the detachment that's the problem. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And what you just said was interesting. Like I was just hearing, you know, uh, because I study, you know, tantric Buddhism and they talk about there's a, and then the male essence is, is, is white, you know, it's, it's the white drop and, and that's abstract. That's like lunar and it's abstraction. Right. And then the female essence is, is the red drop. And that is, you know, that is um, this fiery emotionality and, and intensity. Um, and when the t- the two the two want to meet each other, they need to meet each other, you know. And they meet each other in the center and the heart is like an alchemical thing. So so that the abstraction has to break has to you know break down, and the 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 fire you know burns up, and then then something is and it meets in the center, which would be that the alchemical chamber or the heart or, or whatever. That's yeah. kind of what you were, in a way, what you were uh, describing, um, in less yeah, mythopoetic it's, terms. Um, right. At the, in fact, the mythopoetic as a vector of of change, which we discuss in the means uh, portion, which I think is maybe the penultimate, or let's see, mystery, mission, means. That's the third one. No, morality is the third one. I'm just oh. looking at it right now. Oh, yeah. is it? Okay. Morality um, means meaning. Yeah. Yep. Um, in the penultimate, the means, this idea of the mythopoetic as a as a vector of of well, I call it the arcana of persuasion. In other mm-hmm. words, if we're committed to this idea of 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 this virtue of nonviolence. And I think we ought to be to a great degree. It's not to say that you should be a pacifist, yeah. not at all, but, um, but rather that then you should really be persuasive. And so some of the things we're going to do are to, to talk about uh, persuasive techniques, hmm. how you can be a bit better at persuasion. And of course, r- writing code that people want to use is a, is a form of persuasion. That is absolutely certain. It's just it's very different from the communicative faculty, the kind that you and I are using right now. Right. So how to better bring those the 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 persuasive faculty and communication to bear. Right. So so Talking all these sort of geekies, guys, engineers like uh, and people like that who don't necessarily have the highest communicate communicable skills, but, but live in a land of imagination and high abstraction. You know, and this could mm-hmm. could be helpful for them on some level. Well, just as the um, the kind of how it can be useful for people like, uh, dare I say, you and I, uh, well, yeah, for people like you and me to embrace a little bit of the savoir faire, right? Yeah. The the let's get out of our heads for a little while out of the abstract we we deal in abstractions too but they tend to be philosophical abstractions yeah, yeah, or yeah. um the if it's the mythopoetic or the philosophical the theoretical these are all very important for the left brain person to be able to appreciate but the reverse is also true mm-hmm. so it's about that balance and it's not to say that someone who's naturally disposed to being a tech geek is ever going to be a super poet unless yeah. they were you know, because that's going against the grain to some degree. Yeah, yeah. But it's learning how to appreciate and embrace a little bit of that element 
um, because it's how powerful it can be and the reverse, the theoretical types, the poetic types and so on to be able to embrace the tech geeks. We all need to work together in tandem. So if you can't get head, heart and gut aligned all the time within yourself, at the very least, you have to have those elements in your community to, to be the most powerful. We'll yeah. talk about that too. Yeah, that's interesting. Because yeah, I wonder that also, it's not just an individualistic thing. It's like the head hard and and the in the the guts or the the engine room of of a of a tribe or a community is is also very important no doubt um, so what about the mission um yeah what's the mission here from Man, hierarchical to... authority to liberated networks okay yeah i'm going to i'm going to go ahead and uh sort of reveal the answer to that one and take away a little bit of the mystery but uh, forgive me i know i'm 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 talking to an audience composed of uh well to a host who's canadian originally living in europe and uh to an audience that's composed of a lot of different europeans and people from around the world but to my mind uh the answer is good old-fashioned american jingoism is the mission and by that i mean this term the consent of the governed right the consent of the governed comes from the american declaration of independence so that's going to sound like rah-rah patriotism oh after all this guy's a conservative after all but no um it's really it is really thinking of the old wigs right the idea that uh, it's it's a it is a revolutionary form of liberalism that even the Burkeans and the Lockeans would be suspicious of. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, territory embodied. that I don't I don't know. So you can unpack that some more. That would be great. Sure. So um, mm -hmm. in the in the Anglo American uh, tradition of political philosophy. You have John Locke. John Locke's second treatise of government really set out a way of looking at staying within the framework of Thomas Hobbes, which was the idea of a Leviathan force that would keep people from fighting each other, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Essentially, yeah. um, which just tends to justify centralization. When you had the liberals, uh, the French liberals, uh, such as Mont uh, Montesquieu, um, as well as the uh, British liberals, uh, such as David Hume and um, uh, John Locke, the, these Enlightenment thinkers had this idea that you could introduce checks and balances and that, that there would be a way to organize society in such a way that would retain the aspects of this, of this Leviathan power that would bring people to heel uh, who were getting out of line, essentially, um, and and essentially maximized freedom to the point that it became a chaotic version of anarchy. Edmund Burke was a major proponent. He he's a uh, resolves the paradox of being a conservative liberal, if you like, because he didn't believe in uh, you know the uh, 
what are the the French Revolution he thought was a mistake and and so on. Whereas Jefferson really, you know, he was one of the instigators of the American Revolution and said so. And in the Declaration of Independence, the idea of the consent of the governed is a revolutionary concept. It says it really is about the attempt to bring about a consent-based order. Mm-hmm. And a consent-based order, you can consent to join a niche or have an association with others who are – you can get yourself into a uh, a kibbutz, which is a completely communist state of affairs, right, where all of the – where wealth is redistributed and work is done equally and the fruits mm-hmm. of the worker – taken by each equally. And a kibbutz is a very fine um, uh, sub-Dunbar generally order that you will find in in Israel, for example, mm-hmm. among among the, uh, the the Israelis. Yeah. But the so consent um, of the government, but is that, you, does that mean pure you know, sort of representative democracy? Uh, oh. No, that's the problem. Okay. Representative democracy. Yeah. So the difference between a um the, the the radicalism of Jefferson is that no, it means that we can say this isn't working for us. We we don't agree to this anymore. And it harkens to this idea of the the sort of uh, 19th century anarchists in the United States which is this idea that you might want you of, of opt-in government. Okay. Mm, opt-in government. Mm-hmm. So an, so a kibbutz is something that you would opt into. It's yeah. opt-in socialism. And the meta perspective I'm, I'm drawing from here is a, a more like opt-in liberalism. It is not an imposed order. It is a, an emergent order, but the framework, the set of protocols are, are such that, you want to people to be able to opt into the state of affairs. Republicanism, you know, democratic republic is just, like I said, vote and pray. And pray. that, <laughs> you know, and hope that the people who represent you have your best interest at heart. Yeah. We've, all, we've already talked about what kind of power slinks from the coital bed of mommy money and mm-hmm. papa power, right? Um and that is something rather ugly and something we we have called fascism in the past. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's weirdly neither left nor right what the grays are about is suspicion or skepticism of of central power. And so the more opportunity to, you have to opt into different governance arrangements and have markets and government governance markets and governments assuming that a government is just some sort of ordering function that is enforceable. Mm-hmm. You start to get some really interesting ideas. You start to get the idea that governance can, can be supplied by entrepreneurs and innovators and open source law is possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is, that mm-hmm. is the kind of thinking that is at the, at the, guess the, the 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 leading edge of gray thinking right so opting in to what and of course that would mean opting out as well wouldn't it of you should have yeah. the ability to opt out <laughs> you know that's right that's right 
It's funny that uh, our, our our friend Alexander Bard, who's such an interesting guy, and I encourage everybody to take his course uh, at Parallax, um, he has this this concept called exodology, yeah. which harkens, of course, to Exodus. And Pharaoh, um, you know, raised Moses in the court of Egypt, of, uh, of Egypt, of the, of the Egyptians. And of course, um, you know, after Moses had a conversation with a burning bush, decided it was time to take his, his people out of, of Egypt yeah, the exodology and is the big opting out. <laughs> it's of, the big opting of the, out of the centralized um, principle, right? Yeah, and so and authoritarianism for, and and all that. That's right. So we have this idea of exit, which has been celebrated annually at the Passover Seder for three thousand plus years. Yeah, and so it's it just goes to show you how powerful stories can be in leeching into our consciousness and in showing us the way literatively and figuratively to this idea, this algorithm of exit yeah. over voice say, where voice is like, I want to protest and I want to vote and I want to make my, make my voice be heard. Well, that shit don't work anymore, particularly in this day and age. Yeah. The only people politicians listen to are the lobbyists who come into the lobby and and the power most powerful people of the deep state and that triangulation is working against all of us hmm. at least that's what i believe now i may sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist to many of your listeners but i'd say a lot of people are opening their eyes now and seeing these dynamics the gray tribe certainly has and the gray robes are really going to try to understand the systems and processes by which these um unholy alliances form and how they can be dissolved through okay. technological means so the gray robes then you know you're using it's a metaphor right for yeah. for i guess for people who are priestly like priestly cast in the sense of you know uh, of perhaps uh, ethics and um and the spirituality of the endeavor is that yes. is that is that what the gray robes metaphor means? Yeah, it's uh, it, I'd say it, it I'd say that's exactly right. I also would think an, yet another way to appeal to the idea of gray is to think about life is not so black and white. Right? There's not this manichaean good and evil, all light and all darkness. The gray robes respect, in some sense, uh, the Nietzschean, you know, beyond good and evil, um, just as they might appreciate the passion, power, and poetry of the red goddess, as you put it. But they yet are not going to jettison the practice of the virtues. They're not going to say, we're going to get violent. We want to embrace nonviolence as a fundamental virtue and practice it in thought, word, and deed. And without such practice, we mm. know we're going to be turned into that which we hate. But we don't want to get too Manichaean, uh, which yeah, Manichaeism, good, yeah. yeah, Manichaeism tends to make people too dogmatic. So um, yes, we have a mission 
we have a, a, a set of moral precepts or practices, which uh, in this course we call the virtues, because of that idea of practice, not just reflection. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> when you talk about the, the virtues, are you drawing mm -hmm. from any particular source or are you just making them up as you go along? Like I'm um, kind of making them up. Yeah. I mean, I'm, they're all, they're all well-practiced and I think they're timeless. Yeah. But I, but I'm certainly, um, then you're not making them up. No, I'm not making them up in the sense, but I'm not referring to like the Catholic dish, dictionary of virtues. Yeah. Right. You're, you're picking yeah. and choosing from, from the, you know, got it. Yeah. The best of, yeah. The best of. Okay. Okay, so so that's so we got we got through mission and we're now we're in, in morality. Was your next one, mystery yeah. mission morality, from vicious mm -hmm. nihilism to the act of practice of, of virtue. So, yeah, not vicious nihilism. I, I see a lot of vicious nihilism out there. I mean, it feels like the, the it feels like everywhere I go, there's a atmosphere of vicious nihilism you know i teach at a university i, I can feel it in the staff room <laughs> you can, <laughs> i can see it on the metro i can see it in all the institutions vicious nihilism yeah and yeah and also i notice there's people are very virtuous and you know there's a, there's a virtue that are ar that arises despite that so how do you how do we how do we practice morality in the sense you mean here the the idea I'm, I I will uh, appeal to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali for a moment. Patanjali for oh, a moment. Great. Okay, yeah. I'll go east um, because it hit me like a ton of bricks one day that I was sort of dancing around this thought and and started to read the the translations of Patanjali um, in the Yoga Sutras and the Yamas versus the Niyamas are, are what I'm talking about in particular. The first three, as it happens, uh, appear in ours with anglicized, of course, but there is ahimsa, which is the active practice mm -hmm. of nonviolence. Okay. With Gandhi popularized, popularized. Yeah. And to, to great success with the bringing down of the British Raj, he called it Satyagraha, yep. which was the, 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 yep, the active practice of ahimsa. That is powerful shit. We don't have to go out with our muskets. We are living in a different age. Now, mm. it, it, the it day may come when we have to take up arms. So I do think we have to be warrior monks. Yeah. But our first battles are going to be um, uh, satyagraha, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so we need to train ourselves. And this is, and this is really... Um, uh, what's so interesting about the practice of the, the the active practice of virtues it is not passive reflection in the west we tend to think of ethics as something i learned in college and then i can just reflect on or i or or, or they taught me that in sunday school when i was a kid or whatever right excuse my southernness but that's you know that happens a lot around here and the practice of of, of moral practice uh, through the ex through the exercise of the virtues is really like training like anything else. You have to train like you would train on piano or yoga or karate or whatever your art or science yes. is. Yes. You have to put in your 10,000 hours. And in fact, with this, you have to put in more. So yeah. the 
active practice of ahimsa and thought, word, and deed is going to make us better practitioners of satyagraha. So that's number one. The second is, and this is a sort of a, is, is, is satya. Uh, satya being uh, our connection with truth, truth uh, of, within ourselves, being true to ourselves and being, and living in truth. Mm -hmm. So to to anglicize it and westernize it, I would call it integrity and all of the integrity in bodies, mm. right? Knowing ourselves in truth and being in right relation to other people truthfully. Mm -hmm. You said integrity in so bodies. Why did you say that? Um, well, it, it this is the difference between the Western and the Eastern conception that I think is so important yeah. is this embodiment, this active practice. We're not just ratiocination machines. We are living beings. And if we don't exude this in the world through our practice, where it ripples out and affects other people in positive ways, then we are we are merely monks. We are not warrior monks. We are not practitioners. So it's it's um what good am I up in an ivory tower or on a mountain, right? in my monastery praying, I need to come out of the monastery and affect others, radiating that, that with that radiative force that mm -hmm. is a force for good, right? And so think about the term integrity in English as it is applied to a building. It holds together. When multiple people practice integrity, society holds together better. Yeah. It has structural integrity or tensegrity. Yeah. Beautiful. So this this it is neither individualistic nor collectivist. It is both. It is interdependency. The practice of the virtues is not something that is just something that we reflect on or listen to on a podcast. It is something we have to take back into the world and think about and act upon every single day. And then the third one is, uh, that we would find is um there's a Esteya, which is non-stealing, and I bundle that one into um, into ahimsa. Um, but yeah, that makes me think of. Sorry to, to interrupt again, but yeah, the the last one, non-stealing, makes me think of vampirism. In other words, stealing people's souls or stealing their energy or or stealing their resources or you know that's right because or there's there's a there's a lot of that that goes on, um, you know, on all levels, um, and you know, psychological, politically, whatever. So, so I think that's very important. That's a very important principle. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and and the 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 thing about um, the thing about being an anti-authoritarian or against centralism. Yeah, you know, you have to think about what you're for. We are, if we are for a consent-based order, we have to be, what is the mission behind the mission? And that that is happiness, harmony, and prosperity. That is self-organizing community uh, fill, filled with love and mutual support and mutual yeah. aid. And that requires active moral practice day in and day out. It, active compassion, mm -hmm. mutual aid is not about outsourcing your responsibility to your to your fellow man to distant capitals. No. It is yeah. about getting in there 
and looking someone in the face and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to write you a check and, and help you out. Cause I know your family's going through a tough time or to this other person saying, I am not going to write you a check. What you need is to put down the drugs or the, or whatever, and get your shit together and get a job and, you know, right. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and that those, the, those filaments of community that are present when we have face-to-face -face interaction, when we meet each other. That's the key. Um, it's the key. It's the key. You can't if, there, if it's not that. a face-to-face, -face, um, we did a we did a, a a couple of courses on Ivan Illich, um, and that was his big thing. It's like when charity becomes an abstraction, um, and care becomes sort of a, a concept. You know, it becomes institutionalized. Then people are 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 not able to act that out. In, you know in a spontaneous manner in the moment, face to face, meeting somebody, you know, picking the Samaritan out of the ditch, not because of some kind of law or rule or because that was the, the thing to do in that particular, particular moment. So <clears throat> in a way, there is a dogma. And in a way, there's something greater than, you know, greater than, I think I just heard that the Hasidic um the, the the meaning of hesed or hasid in the hasidic communities in judaism means greater than the law right mm. so mm -hmm. so so um so that's what when i think that of, oh thank you i want to steal that i want to steal that maybe mm. your audience will forgive me from jot it for jotting that no, down hesed means breaking boundaries actually uh you know in the, in the in the tree of life in the kabbalah you have the gavura and hesed and gavura is making boundaries and hesed is breaking boundaries so there's this process that we have to do all the time um and i think and this I think is if we really... look at morality in that way it's it's much richer than thou shalt or thou shall not or whatever right that's the old and 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 or we're gonna we're gonna devise a trustless system that can't be gained with Bitcoin. Yes, great. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at the same time, make yourself and your neighbor trustworthy. Because at the end of the day, not everything is a transaction. Yeah, right? very good. It, there, there can be, you know, there's a difference between the sacred and the profane. And maybe transaction belongs to the profane. But spiritual transaction, spiritual congress happens in person it happens in a in a an environment of trust and trust must be earned and trust must be the be the outgrowth of practice where mm -hmm. integrity is at the center Very this good. is the kind of stuff that the the grays often just miss because they're off chasing tokens you know, cryptocurrency tokens, or they're off trying to devise some kind of system and code, or they're trying to come up with some um, super cool enterprise that's going to get them rich. But at the end of the day, so what? Like, I'm as capitalist as they come when it comes to, you know, tinkering and having the incentive to continue tinker tinkering to create value for people. Mm -hmm. I'm all about that. Okay. And I hate to use the word capitalist because it has such baggage. I don't want to yeah. chase anyone off who's a listener. 
but but um, serving people through innovation and entrepreneurship. Let's call it entrepreneurial um, markets. Yeah. I'm yeah, okay yeah. with that. Okay. Well, the Japanese. I, uh, one of the, somebody told me in Zen. I think it was DT Suzuki. That one of the reasons the Japanese were so successful in, in business is because they had a spirit of, uh, like, like, um, not for myself. They had some word for it. I can't remember a Japanese word, like for the other person, not for me. Mm. <laughs> and that was how they became great entrepreneurs, not for myself. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yep. It's laser. I, there's this, um, this man, uh, who's, uh, been a mentor of mine in, in the entrepreneurial sense. I'm not much of an entrepreneur, but he sure did show me the show me the way in this regard. Who said he's he said, it doesn't matter how many cool and interesting ideas you have, Max. If you don't start from the perspective of the cut the the heart's desire of the person you're trying to serve and reverse engineer everything from that, you will absolutely fail. Nice. Yeah. And that is a that can take on a spiritual dimension. Well, it's not it just taking seems, on; it is the spiritual dimension, you know, in a way, right? Yeah it 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 reveals the transactions can seem so bloodless and so selfish. Yeah. But if you think of it in terms of interdependency, if you think of it in terms even of of sustainable interactions over time where um we are trying better to serve each other yeah and as as the japanese uh, i'm curious to learn that word that's really cool or it's you could also um, put it in the in the boober sense of i thou instead of i it right you know uh, treating mm -hmm. a person as the as this the sacred other yeah yeah and and realizing that there's mutual benefit and mutual gain ceases to be something so so base or so uh um yeah i don't know uh, it it can it, and we start to ascribe that sense of service to places where it's been tabooized because this is how power justifies itself no we can't allow that because we need to make sure that this is uh that this is on the up and up and okay so we're going to provide X, like governance services, right? That's not to say that you won't have corrupt uh, entrepreneurs. There's a lot of them out there. Sociopaths are in every system. But this idea of mutualism, yeah. uh, whether it's mutual aid or mutual transaction, mutual benefit and transaction, is part and parcel, I think, to 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 gray orthodoxy or doctrine if you like so it's also beyond the the zero sum equation right um exactly and it's a mentality of abundance rather than you know poverty mm -hmm. mm. so the means is the next one that's catching my eye here okay the spiritual stasis to personal development this is yeah I, like I, I do kind of cringe a little bit at the at the personal development thing but but i'm sure you have a, a better uh, and a more refined notion of of what that means well shit if it's making people cringe maybe we ought to change the copy <laughs> <laughs> but um, making me cringe doesn't mean other people don't love that but but um but i but i 
but I, for the reasons we just spoke about in, in you know the, this whole kind of personal development trying to get ahead it's kind of has this it has a bit of a flavor of uh often has a bit of a flavor of you know you know um you know individualism or, or something in the, in the, the grossest american in the negative oh side yeah i don't want it to sound like some kind yeah. of uh life coach thing or business coach thing no 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 we yeah let's change that copy um no what i really want to communicate with that is that there are other dimensions of development besides that yeah um oh alexander bard's been on my mind a lot lately let's go back to his idea of the pillar saint and the boy pharaoh okay? oh that's a great one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so I love the, this uh, this typology. Um, the pillar saint is is one who's uh, all in their head. They're moralistic and intellectual, but they sit up in their ivory towers and they just want to they they want to moralize from those great heights, those great that great realm called ex abstraction land. Yeah. Right. And the moralisms don't do anything but criticize or pronounce judgment. On the other hand, you have this character called the boy Pharaoh, who is really a, a warrior, um, is all brawn and no brains, wants to throw his weight around. It's not to mean that he's stupid or she's stupid. It just means that they're they're really about power for its own sake. Yeah. And they they fancy that they can be Pharaoh by by dint of that power. But they haven't grown. They haven't grown at all spiritually, morally, or intellectually. They're just all about strategy for how to get power. They're Machiavellians in some sense. So, so you have the boy Pharaoh and the pillar saint, and and when when each is so underdeveloped, underdeveloped, they can't grow up. The pillar saint is at these great heights, but doesn't know how to embody in practice and to make the world a better place. Yeah. And the and the boy Pharaoh uh, ha, has no uh, no real moral compass or or intellectual heft, so is just they form these weird alliances, but um, it's it, it's not it's usually not to good ends. Hmm. So the idea of personal moral development could be seen in multiple ways. It's really about don't be a pillar saint, which is probably most of the people who are going to be interested in this court are going to be pillar saints. They're going to be intellectuals who want to sit back and, and reflect on things. I'm I'm so drawn to, to that abstraction. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really mm -hmm. drawn to it. But I know that I have to exert... Uh, in fact, I have this, this saying about physicalism, which we touch on in the mystery section, to exist is to exert... It's yep. almost like the pillar saints don't exist except in abstraction. So they don't exert. Absolutely. Yeah. So the yeah, uh, the archetype um, of both is yep. the Renaissance man or woman. Yep. Right? Even Who, if one is, you know, one is uh indominant in the other, it's still if that if both are if both are present, then you have a more full human being. Right. Exactly. So I think like you, I'm a kind of a bookish guy who reads a lot, but I have to do very intense physical things all the time, too, in order not just to stay there. Otherwise, um, you know, it, it seems very necessary for me to um, to, to uh, practice embodiment in some kind of a way, whereas I imagine the embodied types, 
you know, and I used, I used to actually coach people who are in the military and things like that. And these guys are, these guys, you know, you know, are kind of like, they need, they need to have more ineffable experiences. They need to read, they need to, you know, they need to kind of uh, learn, learn the, the, um, you know, the mind a bit. So, so, yeah, I think Alexander has a very good analysis of that. It's like, um, he, he uses more vulgar terms like, you know, the guy who's just in his dick, right? And then the guy who's just in his head. So the dick guy needs to, you know, <clears throat> yeah, it's learn like the head the, and the head guy needs to learn learn about his dick. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, and it's, it's beautiful. And I love how gauche he can be sometimes, but um, uh, I, I have that particular taste and that really you know the means the means section is really about uh not not development in the sense of we're going to help you find abundance which is some you know (laughs) life coachy shit for we're going to teach you how to get rich yeah um it is more (laughs) you know it is more like okay how are you gonna what does it mean to develop spiritually this is not woo there can be there can be some woo elements, and we really get that over with in the mystery section. Yeah. Um, but it's not woo woo. It's it's really like, what is the byproduct of, of these these beautiful practices and learning to think and feel in these different ways and align these modalities in ways that help us become more efficacious as gray robes, because we are outnumbered by people who want to subordinate us, who are fighting over. The mat, though the the machinery of power, and so if we don't develop, so the the social singularity is the trope you mentioned the book in the beginning. It, I used for the lateral or lateralization of relationships to make the many more powerful with respect to the few, and heading towards that is in parallel with the technological singularity. Mm-hmm. So. The idea there is that, you know, we're going to, um, when we lateralize our relationships, we have to collaborate and our our collaborations are going to create new forms of organization and new forms of order that make us stronger. But prior to that, innovation and entrepreneurship, we need that compass. We need that desire to peel open the mystery. We need that mission, that mission, which is a a state of affairs we want to live in behind, which is, is the mission behind the mission, which is happiness, harmony, and prosperity. We need to have, be grounded in practices that help us become um, more well-rounded beings and head, heart, and gut. And so the totality of this is really a, a kind of both personal and social development as an order that will allow us to protect ourselves against uh, this, what I'm, what we might call the authoritarian or managerial state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm about to, um, can I make a pause here for a second? Please. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. I just got to, so you're talking about you know the the dangers of the managerial class and um and uh that's what i remember the last thing before you 
before we had our break. Do you want to continue? Yeah, it's there is a um, you know, if if I have to to tell this audience that there is a problem of uh, of corporate power uniting with state power in unhealthy ways, um, I, I probably don't have to do that. Hmm. But I will say that there is a let's call it let's call it a a dark dialectic at play here. Yeah. And we'll use we'll use Klaus Schwab as as the exemplar of this. You know, he has this this German accent and he talks like this and he talks about, you know, how we're going to solve all the world's problems. And he uses terminology like um, collective agency. And what he means by collective oh, agency, <laughs> you know, um, and look, I'm not a, I, I do believe that there is such a thing as, as collective intelligence and swarm intelligence and, and the swarm can have capabilities, but he's not talking about swarm intelligence, nor is he talking about um, when he talks about collective agency, he is talking about in some sense, a dialectic, a Hegelian conception that is at odds with what we're talking about. He's talking about the union of corporation and state, mm. that unholy alliance that allows the, the, the suppression of voices who need, who, or, you know, the censorship of voices, for example, during the pandemic, when people were saying, whoa, 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 this probably came out of the lab. I know two people who were removed permanently from Facebook and only allowed back on, and they had to start over again with their pictures and everything. Mm -hmm. For example, just because they questioned the orthodoxy of the wet market, for example. Really now, interesting. Yeah. In well, the last we were banned, days, I was banned from advertising on Facebook, and I, and I, and I still don't know why. And they still have responded to me, and and uh, you know, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And yeah, you know. Anyway, um, so I can. Well, and and that's and and as far as it goes, it you know, there's this trope. It's their company; they can do whatever they want. They're a there's private nothing company. Nothing I can do about it. There's so nothing leave, I can maybe. do about it either, except. Mm -hmm we want to increase our self-sovereignty, yeah. right? Yeah. And increasing our self-sovereignty, we want to be able to interact. We want to be able to talk to people, communicate with people, even if, if it's in a sort of quasi-broadcast form, without the intercession of a third party. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's important. Yeah, that's so important. Um, anyway, please continue. I have a few things to, to say about that. Please continue. Well, and, and so just in, in terms of the censorship that regime that was erected around the world and that is particularly pronounced in this country right now, and this is of grave concern to a lot of people, COVID was, uh, was the really started waking people up to this problem. Um, and there, there is, but there's also, there are other forms of, uh, of oppression that are tightening that are a, a consequence not just of government power, but of corporate power, and especially that unholy alliance. We're seeing this around the world in WEF, uh, World Bank, uh, the central banking regime that is, you know, supposed to be independent from politics, but is just is absolutely not. Uh, you know, where they, you know, there there are these 
these wizards who control the money uh, and the, the the value of money in many respects mm -hmm. is is a form of central authority that um, leaves us completely helpless to them in a lot of respects. Yeah. So the idea that we might, even if you don't like Bitcoin, for example, the idea that we might innovate our way out of this state of affairs is important. Yeah. And so, um, so the vice is tightening with respect to one side of the vice is corporations. The other side of the vice is states and they're getting tightening the people more and more. Yeah. Well, um, I was thinking about something, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, a certain individual we don't need to name um, was was he just lost his clinical psychology license, uh, uh, and uh, because he said a few things on on on, tw on Twitter, um, you know, off the cuff, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and then and I was thinking about that. I was thinking it's like, why would you want to be mem be a mem? Why would you want to be accredited by an organization? that is authoritarian like that and and why not why don't you just do your own thing you know in a sense like i mean this is there's another guy i was listening to that's it does philosophical counseling and you know it's like it's like coaching and it's like therapy and it's but it's but it has another name you just have to name it something else and then you don't you can do it and and there is it has no um you can just do it without need for any kind of merit, meritocracy, except for the except for the, the the your own merits and and the feedback of the people who, um, you know, appreciate whatever you're doing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway I mean that's that that's like uh, I know it's just sorry I, I just my thoughts are that if these organizations are so toxic. And so woke and so politically correct and so, you know, so overbearing and bureaucratic and Stalinistic and, and all these sort of things that, you know, but, the, but we do, the good thing is that we do have the possibility to, to create organizations like the Parallax and things like this. We, we don't give a fuck about that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love it. Um, yeah. I, I love the, um, I love that that general mean in the uh, we we both happen to be part of this just this little group on this little online group i guess you'd call it a message board yeah the legendary intellectual the, deep web you mean <laughs> yeah the intellectual yeah. deep mm -hmm. web uh, the part you know uh, a part of the dark renaissance yes. and i love i love that the you know there is definitely a heterodox community, but what's so important about that is we take each other to task. We we wrestle in the mud a bit. And, and yep. yes, it's intellectual, but it's not just intellectual. It's also, it can get emotionally charged and that's okay. We're human beings. We fire off stuff to, towards each other and sometimes it lands. Sometimes it causes me to reflect, reflect and change my mind. And I think yep. that's that is an, an absolutely vital process. The fact that we're doing that with one another in a self-organized and deliberate way is so important to to not only yeah. in reflecting what we how much we care about discourse in this John Stuart Mill terms of radical toleration, 
Yeah, and there's, but you know, all, you talked about yeah. Ahimsa, but there's also a fight going on there often. But it's the right kind of fight because it's a fight over ideas. It's not a fight over persons, you know, in, in a sense. I mean, not that that... Right, well, you know, warrior monks have to train. Yeah, yeah. It's a training you know, ground, and yeah. It's a training ground, right? We're, I mean, it's there's not... I don't know. I mean, I think what it mean would mean to slit someone else's throat in in discourse would be to censor them. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. You know, so um, yeah, it's it's you know, free speech is welcome in in this environment, and we we have we developed that culture, and I think it's great. I yeah. wish I could spend more time in the mud with all of you guys. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of work to do, and I'm sure you do as well. But um, in any case. Yes. So meaning is the last one. Meaning. Yeah. Meaning. From isolation and anxiety to community and self-sovereignty. Yeah. Isolation yeah. and anxiety. In other words, you know, the meaning crisis writ large, you know, people feeling fragmented, anxious, disconnected from each other, you know, high levels of anxiety because of this, you know, new social media technologies etc cetera, etc cetera. so so and then community and self-sovereignty what is you know so what is what do you mean what does that look like what does it you know what does it mean and what does it look like i think um i don't know if you've ever heard of the philosopher and i'm and you know i come from the anglo-american tradition but um all you uh intellectual deep web people have caused me to return to some of the the continentals um but there's this guy there's this french philosopher jean baudrillard of course whose whose uh idea of the simulacrum uh the simu you know is is front and center in our world that we are completely living in the simulacrum right yeah which is which is a a way of com confusing sort of the map with the territory um, our interactions are all digital. You see people sort of absorbed in their phones all the time. Yep. We see teenagers who, including my, my teen, who, whom I love very much. Yep. Um, but I, he's suffered from depression and anxiety. And we both know that it's because he, he grew up online too much, mm -hmm. grew up on his smartphone. Yep. And mm -hmm. so you know, he's been taking steps to 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 get away from his, his phone and to get away from the screens. And I've learned a, a really hard lesson for all my other kids. But suffice it to say, yes, we we have to be a digital, a global digital priesthood in the sense that why not avail ourselves of these tools? Yeah. But keep in mind, the Freemasons, they were able to maintain tremendous sort of doctrinal integrity around the world that's not it's not to say there weren't schisms but they yeah. had doctrinal integrity for what it meant to be a mason and and the doctrine that you learn in the initiation rites and all that stuff were passed down because of good protocols internal to the organization and the esoteric the need for good protocols yeah yeah, and good protocols are designed to bring people together in mutuality. Yep. That community is a profound human need that I think we lack. And while I'm very much enjoying this conversation with you, I'd much rather we were in the same room. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Like one day, I hope that we can all don real gray robes, <laughs> real actual gray real robes. gray ceremonial robes I, and be I, with mm. each other in the same time and place. I used to practice um, uh, Zen in the Korean tradition um, and everybody wore big in, in that tradition. They wear gray actual. So I've actually worn gray robes before. Uh -huh. But uh, in a literal sense, but but anyway, you're talking about something else. But you are talking about moving from, let's say, the simulacrum into the real. I want to um, well, not yes. push and back. So not just push yeah, back yeah. on you here a little bit, but but um, sure. but uh, um, I, I was we're about to launch our second iteration of Luke Beckney's course called The Hard Way, which is a Gurdjieffian course, and he did some experiments to see if you know. If, if you can transmit these Gurdjieffian principles, you know, in, you know, on Zoom and uh, had very positive, you know, results. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and so, so I think a lot of people say that, that they're fr fr frustrated with, with this, but maybe if we had the right protocols and we had a, a possibility of sort of, you know, having this conversation, you know, on a regular basis and then meeting a couple times a year that that would be a beautiful thing and I, and i and i people you know people like alexander and others who who i've engaged with a lot online eventually we meet each other eventually it just it has to we have there's this there is a need to move into the the real um space and meet each other you know in an embodied uh, yeah, it's way, it's so. a it's a yes and you know yeah. I'm not good. I mean I'm we're sitting here talking on over Zoom um, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater, but I do want to um, to say that the digital cannot be a replacement for that which can be gained in person. Oh no! When when people meet in hallowed halls sing together, uh, chant together, learn together, and are able to clasp hands, hug, that kind of stuff. There's something, and, and go through an initiation. You know, yep. I made a little funny metaphor about how this is an initiation on the gray yep. robes, yep, right? Yep, yep. But eventually, this is a sort of a proto, a proto thing. These are the seeds of something I'm hoping. But eventually, there's going to have to be a means of coming together in person yep. and ritualizing that. Because yep. if you don't have that, I think um, we stay in the simulacrum, we stay in abstraction land, and it won't become meaningful enough to have staying power. Yeah. Well, in the Vajrayana tradition, um, you can they have this um, the, these you know you can you get you get you you do go through these initiations and. And you can get the, the the you can get the, the somebody somebody might read a text and then you're allowed to practice this particular sadhana or you know, but um, but 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 it is exactly what you described. So so you you could do part of that online, like mm. you could do the first couple steps of that, let's say, but you couldn't do the full initiation until you've actually, you know, as you say, gotten and, and met you know the initiator and 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 the, the group of you know in a, in a in a real real place so so i, I, mm -hmm. I totally agree but I, but I, it is also very interesting how mu how far you can go 
in in uh, creating relationships on Zoom. You can't go all the way, but you can you can you can exchange things very intensely with people, and you can create very um, strong networks. It would appear, you know, globally everywhere. It's a it's a wild thing. No, and we we must we simply must do that. It'll accelerate the process. Yeah. Um, I, I think about the way the Orthodox Church is organized, which is quite a, quite different from how the Catholic Church is organized, and it's it's rather decentralized compared yep. to having a, a pope and a and uh, the Vatican. And they have been able through tradition and you know uh, sort of reference to their doctrine have this spreading activation network of churches around the world that are mm-hmm. shockingly similar in the way they they're they're done and and that the way that the doctrine and the traditions are conveyed yeah. uh, same with Jews the Jewish diaspora is mighty impressive when it comes to I mean uh the way the way they're able to execute this yeah I think they call it conciliatory in the Orthodox tradition the councils like there's councils of elders that make sure that one guy doesn't go nuts or so there's a council, uh, you know, one guy doesn't become a, uh, you know, a, a guru or some, something, but, but they have, I think that's the way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, we could, I mean, I'm, and then I'd be happy to rip them off, uh, too. It's like, you've got to rip off the Freemasons. You've got to rip, you know, they have the lodge system and they yeah. have a grand lodge, but some people, you know, they, if they don't want to obey the grand lodge, they don't have to. Uh, it's more of like we really strongly, you know, suggest you do, but, but, it, mm-hmm. but look, it's 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 really about the communitarian aspect of this and the doctrinal aspect of this. Becoming more formal formalized with it is is the point, because otherwise, a bunch of techno nerds coding is not enough. Yeah. Um, you know, the Bitcoin white paper is just dripping with a worldview. I mean, people are like, what? What are you talking about? But if you look at the choices that that person makes, it's very anti-authoritarian. It's anti-corporate finance and it's anti-government. Yep. Both. Yep. And it is, it is, it is well, this such was like- interesting- the big yeah. pushback I gave you at the beginning, you know, when we were working on this course, I said, you have to have a legitimate authority, right? Not just be an anti-authoritarian, because I support being an anti-authoritarian if by authoritarian you're meaning people who are, who are, you know, people who are, are ty- tyrannical with their authority. But what about authority? Like, Somebody might ask, you know, what what's your authority, Max? You know, you you want to start this thing called the gray robes, and and you know, from what authority do you, do you do are are you doing that? Are you doing that? And and uh, if that doesn't sound like a rude question, no, it's 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 a wonderful question. It is really me not wanting to be a pillar saint, uh-huh. right? As I feel I have have felt before I even had had the term for it, which I think is beautiful. I've I've always been rather pillar sainty and um in my outlook and in my orientation, but I knew I needed to do something that would could actually exert, you know, exert something in the world. And so I am 
I am trying to be a catalyst, a conduit for something that is already in motion. Who the hell am I question is very important. Yeah. And I say, I've written a couple of books. But the point is, as a decentralized movement, we need to coalesce around the mystery, the mission, the the means, the meaning, and so on. I, I probably missed one in there. Morality, the morality. Morality, of course, that's the, one of the most important ones. If we yeah. don't coalesce around those things, just as the, and, you know, we can have administrative councils and things like <laughs> that, but... Planting the seed is really about making it possible for people to take up the mantle themselves. Yeah. It's like it's like a candle's flame. If everybody's got a candle, it doesn't preclude if I give you some if I put my wick to yours, we can both have flame. Right? It's not a zero sum thing. I'm not trying to be anything but a catalyst. Yeah. And so so that's, everybody can relax. Max is not a guru. You're not starting a cult here. Um, no, I don't have. I'm not. Because uh, because actually, one of the first comments we got when I when I was marketing your course on Facebook is like, "Oh, is Parallax starting a cult here?" But but I but I guess this person doesn't understand the uh, that it's very serious and kind of ironic at the same time the 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 way it's you're presenting it. Um, I think it is serious. And I think you are being audacious, uh, but I but but I think there's you know it feels to me like there's a lot of intelligence and and um, and uh, you know goodwill behind behind the whole project. So uh, yeah, it yeah. Thank you. I I hope so, and I hope it's perceived that way. It is really an invitation um, for the saints to step off the pillar and embody. Uh, themselves so that they can become force multipliers with each other. Great. And I think a lot of people want to do that. And if you want to do that, come and hang out with us. I will be a full participant and uh, we're going to all do this together. And I'm sure it's going to be a quite an interesting ride. Um, so, so Max, maybe we're winding down. We've gone through your, your, the five M's and, and um, or maybe we're moving towards some kind of a conclusion. Is there anything you want to tell anything else that is on your mind and, and heart that you want to sort of transmit to people in closing? Well, sure, I can. Um, I can offer. Um, I would love for people to find me on Substack. And I know that sounds awful cliche. But um, but I'm I think I can offer something for free, you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be paid. Obviously, if you, you subscribe as a paid subscriber, that's wonderful. But you get two things out of that subscription. You get uh, a, a daily content uh, along the lines of the things that we've been talking about, though perhaps with, uh, you know, other, other themes involved. But you can also um, easily contact me. And um, I would be very keen to follow up with anybody who's interested in this course. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we kill multiple birds with one stone if you subscribe to Substack. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a rich, a rich um, exploration. I can attest to that. In fact, that's why I reached out to you because I was I got on your Substack. Um, 
And also, I should say that we're going to have a, a further conversation in a couple of weeks with Mr. Alexander Barr to try a log and and um, we really want to push we really want to push the gray gray robes uh, concept and, and and your ideas here on Parallax. So it's been a, a big pleasure talking to you uh, in depth, you know, intellectually for the first time, and I hope we have further conversations. Oh, likewise, Andrew, I've really uh, enjoyed myself today and uh, I, I look forward to more.